G'day mate, Forty here. So I saw that uh, Colin Liddell profiled the prolific blogger Z-Man, who pretty much turns out a new column every day. Like, how does he do it? Now, I haven't followed Z-Man very much the last four years, because I, I find his, his columns are just a series of assertions about reality. So, unlike a Steve Saylor who tries to argue from data, uh, Z-Man just piles on a lot of assertions, so I don't, don't feel value there. Like, anyone can assert anything. There's no, there's no payoff for me as a reader. But he does very effectively feed an audience. So, and he, I didn't realize he'd been doxxed by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Apparently, he's a, a software salesman. But uh, I just checked out his blog. Started off going on Colin Liddell's website, Neocrat, and seeing uh, who's who in the alt-right Z-Man profile. Then I read the Southern Poverty Law Center docs from February of this year. Then I went to Z-Man's blog, and so he's still churning out the columns every day. So it doesn't sound necessarily like he's been fired or that his life's been devastated and didn't detect any change in his tone. So he doesn't seem beaten down. Right, he, he's become a celebrity on the alt right, and uh, he feeds his audience. Right, they they like what he says. He apparently makes you know, approximately fifty thousand dollars a year in donations, which is pretty good. And he does that by effectively, you know, giving the audience you know, the certainty that that they want that the world essentially is fixed against them. So, I first. Uh, what is the Mandela effect? I've forgotten. Wasn't he ducks before? I don't know. But what's the what's the Mandela effect? But uh, he started off as a race realist. Now it seems like he's gotten lost in conspiracy theories. Now the Southern Poverty Law Center takedown was very careful. I mean, they really marshaled their, their data, and so. The Southern Poverty Law Center is a professional organization with you know, tens of millions of dollars in assets and when they go after someone they do it with, with great care. But uh, let's have a look at the Colin Liddell profile on a neocrat. And so, so that's why I say, like, why would anyone choose an avatar like this? So it is a very curious avatar, Z-Man. Like, why does he choose an avatar, the selling of a young boy? Right. What the hell's going on there? So, once anonymous blogger who was outed in February 2022 is John Christopher Zander, 55, software salesman residing in suburbs of Baltimore. His identity became known, ironically, due to a data breach at a domain registrar web host Epic, which was a service that he'd strongly recommended. So... I remember Z-Man posting comments in Steve Saylor section 2014 or so. And then he turned into a, a blogger, race realist around 2015, uh, kind of a paleoconservative type. And he's written for Taki's magazine. He may be of partial Italian-American background, says Colin. He overreacted to an article that cast aspersions on Italian valor in World War II. So it's funny, he uh, presents himself as a data guy, but 
very emotional. I, he reacts very emotionally to, to things. So he started his Z-Man blog in 2013 after a history on comment sections and message boards. So he started out as fairly sane and nuanced on the JQ, other racial issues, but uh, he allowed himself to become associated with actual Nazis by running for countercurrents. There's a strong streak of boomer fatalism and conspiracy theories. Now, why is his chosen avatar from homoerotic artwork by the German artist Ludwig Dietsch shows the German barbarian Alaric the Visigoth being offered a small male child. Right? What's, what's going on here? Like, why would he choose an avatar of this Visigoth being offered a small male child by a dark-haired man for unknown reasons? Like, what the hell is the payoff? Like, why would anyone choose that as their avatar? <laughs> that that is, uh, is a bit weird. Southern Poverty Law Center, prolific white nationalist personality identified. So yeah, I do remember him as fairly nuanced back you know, 2013, 2014, 2015. Then as he became more successful, he became increasingly captured by his audience and uh, increasingly fatalistic and into conspiracy theories. So the Z-Man's a white nationalist internet personality pulls in thousands of dollars per month churning out racist propaganda, rubs shoulders with white nationalists at conferences on both sides of the Atlantic without ever showing his face. But based on research and analysis, Hate Watch believes it has identified the person behind the pseudonym. So Z-Man gets a ton of traffic. Like, how does he do this? Because it's not with a careful data analysis of a Steve Saylor. It's with you know, fairly emotional columns where he makes you know, a series of assertions about the world and how it's you know, headed to hell. And you know, there are dark, sinister forces arrayed against us. Like, why is this so successful? And I think a good answer for this can be found in Decoding the Gurus, the latest podcast says, interview with Manveer Singh on gurus and shamans. Yeah, so we could break it down at a couple levels. Most generally, the argument was that shamanism reliably develops in human societies everywhere because it is just an incredibly compelling means of controlling the uncertainty. And I can like break down, that down a little, but the idea is essentially people want control over the uncertain in their lives. Yeah, so that's what makes pundits successful, right? As opposed to being right or wise or true or good. What makes them successful is that they give people assurance, just like successful clergy give people assurance, like a successful Christian clergy gives people assurance of their salvation, like a successful Jewish clergy gives you know, people assurance about the, the greatness of, of being Jewish. Uh, you know, people want assurance in this you know, atomized, uncertain world. So whether it's gurus, religious figures, bloggers, YouTubers, pundits, politicians, right? People are looking for assurance and there's an enormous market for people who can sound fully assured. So I'd get 
I often get comments, you know, how do you react to Z-Man's latest column where he's very, you know, confidently pronouncing on this conspiracy theory or that conspiracy theory. And, and I'd throw out my hands and say, I don't know how to respond to it. It's just, you know, a series of unprovable assertions, you know, without any evidence given for them. Like, how, how do you re react to that? Well, he has a substantial audience. People react, you know, to the emotional assurance that he gives them, essentially, that the world is biased against them, that dark sinister forces have conspired to rig the world against them, and so therefore they're not responsible for their own misery. And there's an enormous, there's an enormous audience for this, and for shamans and the like. Both informationally, so we want information about all of this stuff, and then we also want outcomes to, to happen in our... Yeah, information. So people who are verbally fluent... Right? People who have strong rhetorical gifts that can master an enormous audience. Now, there's absolutely no connection between the gracefulness with which you speak or write. There's no connection between your rhetorical firepower and you being right or true or good. There's just no connection between these things. But if you sound assured, you know, people feel assured. If you sound confident, people feel confident. Like people like take strength from your rhetorical firepower and your rhetorical fluency, and uh, that makes for success. But there's absolutely no connection between that and being right. So, I'm trying to think of this Fox Sports personality, Colin, 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 Colin Coward. He, he talked in a 2015 interview, I think, with the Ringer. He said. Uh, there's no money in being right, right? When he gives his strong opinions on sports, his success has absolutely nothing to do with being right. right? The money is in being interesting. So with punditry, the money is in being interesting and in offering assurance and sounding like you know what you're talking about, even though you may not. In our favor? And that creates these kind of markets of magic. Specialists are competing to provide the most compelling services, the most compelling means of controlling uncertainty, and that drives the evolution. Yeah, that's a that's a good description of you know YouTuber pundits. All right, we're competing in a narrow market to provide people with assurance in an incredibly complicated, atomized, ever-changing world, where there's no basis in fact for many of the assurances that we're doling out. So if you go to JF Garapi, you get you know, a reliable uh, alt-right libertarian perspective on life, and you know, he sounds very convincing. Richard Spencer, whatever position he's taking, he always sounds very convincing. Right? So these are, are shamans of assurance and comfort and excitement evolution of this incredibly psychologically compelling cluster of practices to, to essentially convince clients that this individual can can provide them with exactly what they need. And I can go a bit into more like what those techniques are, but that's the, the general perspective on shamanism. And so also with influencers, right? They're here to provide you with, with something you need because these are extraordinary individuals. And one of the ways that people you know, show how extraordinary they are is by intermittent fasting, right? So people who do things that you don't want to do, feel like you can't do, like workouts, intermittent fasting, you know, bathing in you know, cold water for 15 minutes every morning, 
right? So, uh, you know, walking 10 miles a day or you know, lifting you know, huge amounts of weight, right? If you want to put yourself out there as a pundit and a YouTuber right, who's you know, making a strong emotional connection with people and meeting their emotional needs for assurance, then really helps to portray yourself as you know, having an extraordinary story and extraordinary gifts and superhuman abilities such as you know, intermittent fasting, lifting extraordinary amounts of weight, you know, extraordinary workouts, extraordinary mental workouts, physical workouts, right? You need to show that you're, you're not the average Joe, right? You've got something special. And then people get comfort that they're connected to someone with something special. So in, in that framework, that compelling cluster of, of features, cognitively compelling and socially compelling cluster of features. Right, so what is cognitively, socially, psychologically compelling? All right, verbal fluency, rhetorical power, a sense of confidence, assurance, strength that just shines out through the words. Uh, someone who comes across as seeing things clearly and you know, someone who's going to assure you of what you need assurance on, someone who's going to you know, divine what's going on in this confusing world, kind of break it down in a way that you can understand and that, that uh, feels good and helps you, you know, feel more prepared and stronger, better able to you know, struggle with the challenges that life puts before all of us. What are they? Like, what are the key ones? Yeah, so the, the thing that I argue in that piece, in which I really focus on that piece, in which I use as a perspective on all of these is different practices that make an individual seem different from normal humanity and in so doing make them seem make it seem more plausible or more t right so if you want to be an influencer or a pundit it helps to or a preacher you know set yourself out from ordinary humanity right you know, extraordinary workouts intermittent fasting you, know, you read a book a day you speak five languages Right? Anything you can do that sets yourself out from the rest of humanity that makes you, you know, more worthy, more likely to receive adoration and develop a following. More tenable that they have special powers. So, in something that I'm writing right now. Right, so do you, do you believe that someone's got special powers? Well, if they can do you know, extraordinarily long fasts that you can't do, if they can do workouts that you can't do, if they do you know, mental challenges that you can't do if they have gifts you know with language with uh, you know, learning with uh, degrees with, with accomplishments you know all sorts of things that you can't then you might get more emotional assurance that this is an extraordinary person with extraordinary powers and that you will get a little taste of that extraordinariness by listening to them connecting with them right you know vicariously you can become more than what you are just by connecting with them now i'm thinking about these all as i'm trying to coin this word or i was like there needs to be a word for this for this process and i've been thinking about this word xenize which comes from like xeno xeno's meaning foreign or other and it's like using all of these techniques to, to look like you are fundamentally different from normal humanities but you observe a lot of deprivation you have these dramatic right so the the youtube pundit man he's someone who's, who's different from the other youtubers right this is someone with special gifts special rhetorical gifts, mental gifts, psychological gifts, social proof. You, know, you can do workouts that you can't do. He's gone to universities that you haven't attended. He's you know, made amounts of money that you know, you'll never be able to make. 
Like he's you know, trekked in the Himalayas. He's walked to the Antarctica. <laughs> All right, so you have to set yourself apart if you, you want to develop a, a following. He's converted to Orthodox Judaism. ...where you claim that, you know, your, your skeleton has been, re been reconstructed. You talk about, like, dying and coming back to life without having your body parts replaced with new body parts. All of these are about a practitioner undergoing some kind of fundamental transformation about, like, drifting away from normal humanity. And that makes it more plausible, more compelling, more tenable that they can do things that, that normal humans cannot. And so related to that is trance, you know, this thing that really defines shamanism is that they, they enter what seem to be these non-ordinary states. And some people will argue that, oh, the non-ordinary states, the trance of shamanism is all about what trans psychologically does, you know. And uh, the compelling YouTuber, right? They enter a different state. They're on. They're they're alive. They're captivating. They're compelling, right? The YouTuber, the shaman, preacher man, the salesman. But creates greater guru. insight. It allows you to be a better problem solving. Whatever. What I'm arguing is that yes, trans might have these effects. But the reason that trans so often occurs is it's kind of this performance of otherness. It's this individual who is experiencing who is looking nothing like what a normal human does. Right. So it's the performance of otherness. Right. That, that's key part to becoming a successful pundit, right? You want to show that you're other, that you're different, that you have accomplishments that other people don't have. You've had experiences that other people don't have, that you have physical, rhetorical, moral, spiritual, psychological, social skills that other people don't have, right? Who wants to, you know, watch someone like them? And people want to watch someone who's other, you know, someone who's, who's different, you know, someone who's extraordinary get extraordinary through your connection with them. It does, and that makes it more compelling, more credible that they are, are doing something that normal humans cannot do. Is that all clear? Yeah, yeah, very clear. And there's there's kind of two immediate parallels that, like, crop up to me. The, the obvious one related to the show that you're currently on is that we find similar sorts of narratives. Obviously, without the magical elements, usually, depends whether Jordan Peterson is talking or not, but um, in the narratives of the gurus that we look at, where they often have these stories about in how childhood they were recognized as you know, special, and, and in, in many cases, it's actually presented as that they were seen to have learning difficulties or some problem, but this was later recognized as a unique way of approaching the world. So that seems to parallel, in maybe in a less dramatic, less supernatural way, the kind of narrative that you're describing shamans to go through, and that makes me, you know, it's a very appealing image, like as the gurus of the modern secular instantiation of shamans, but we can talk about that idea. But the other one, which I'm just curious to get your thoughts on first, is so, like, superhero narratives and in popular media or, or, or like you know anime characters in in japan they often are represented in the same way having these special powers and transformational experiences and you find those in lots of myths and legends so is the argument that that is a cognitive attractor that applies broadly across all these contexts but there's additional elements that make it make it flow into the shamanism stream or is that like slightly different when you're talking about you know kind of fictional figures who you can't probably directly interact with yeah that's a great question so i guess we can start with the second one the parallel you're drawing with superheroes, I think, is a great one, and that's like one that I often think about, where I think that really demonstrates this logic, where the storyteller, the narrator, the writer, needs to convince you, at least in, in this world that they're building, that this person can shoot lasers out of their eyes, that they can be incredibly fast, that you know they can be a spider or whatever, that they can do things that like the average person cannot. And okay, let's have a look here at the uh, Mandela effect. A widespread false memory that Nelson Mandela actually died in prison in the 1980s. Okay. False memory. Okay, is the Mandela effect a false memory? Did you hear that Yi met with Trump and they argued? No, I haven't heard that. All right, so apparently Kanye West, uh, Nick Fuentes, 
and uh, Milo is jumping on board. <laughs> so uh, Kanye met with, with Trump and uh, Trump's not going to sign on board with anything you know, publicly, critically anti-Jewish. Oh, the Mandela effect is, is garbage, just shows how checked out people are. Okay. Right. This is from Decoding the Gurus. Oh, so Kanye just posted a debrief on his meetings with Trump on his Twitter. So what's extraordinary about uh, Trump's new run for president is how professional his team is. And so they seem to have shifted him away from complaining about the 2020 election. They seem an incredibly professional group, you know, highly accomplished. Is Trump going to have the discipline to stick with a, an election team that knows what they're doing and with a track record of success? Or is he going to bring in a bunch of losers like uh, Rudy Giuliani and uh, you know, the, the clown show who these clown show lawyers who are protesting the 2020 election, right? So is Trump going to be strong enough to keep ties with professionals or is he going to bring in losers who simply flatter his ego? So right now it looks like Trump is running a professional campaign. Do I think Trump has a chance? Yes, absolutely. I think uh, Trump has at least a 50% chance of winning the Republican nomination and then a 50% chance of winning the general election. So right now, Trump's team, his political team, is highly professional, highly skilled, with a winning track record. Yeah, Bibi Netanyahu was given a very solid uh, mandate in Israel. He's mounted a very significant political comeback. I, I don't think uh, Israel is clearly in the bag for DeSantis. Right? Israel will go with you know, whoever the winner's going to be. So, yeah, Bibi's got a mandate in that he's able to form a government that has a coherent ideology. So the, the interregnum, the Israeli coalition that excluded Bibi, had no ideological coherence. Now, Bibi Netanyahu is able to form a government that is ideologically coherent, that's all on the right wing, doesn't have much of a margin, just a couple of seats above what the minimum necessary, but at least it's a coherent coalition. And so, yeah, he's got a, a right-wing mandate because everyone is on board. Everyone is, is right-wing, is uh, very strong for you know, protecting Israel, you know, going after Israel's best interests, even if it doesn't necessarily look good. And what do we have here? Boy, you're not afraid, are you? <laughs> These birds aren't very afraid, man. Not as intimidating as I, as I used to be. And what's really fundamental to that is explaining why they can do this and other people cannot. Like, what is, how have they been essentially transformed to facilitate that? And that seems to explain or contribute to the fact that superhero stories are incredibly diverse. But one of the few things that all of them seem to share is an origin story. It's something that tells you why this person is other, why they deviate from humanity. I've actually lately been reading a lot into a superhero origin story, so it's good that you brought this up. And one thing that I really like about them, and that I think provides an interesting parallel for shamanism. I have never been able to keep my attention on any superhero story. Like, they just seem like comics to me. I've never had any interest in comics. So, yeah, I plan to uh, come back to L.A. I'll be back in L.A. in uh, late, late January, but I'm hanging out in Australia for three months. But I've never had any interest in superheroes or in comics, so 
all my friends would you know read comics and it just ugh, it just seems so silly and trivial and I can't I can't maintain any enthusiasm any interest in any superhero story they're just I don't know it's just so aggressively low IQ I, I you know can't be bothered to try to read deeper greater themes into uh, superhero stories it's just never, ever, 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 ever appealed to me. And then when they, they call comics graphic novels, I, I can't, I can't, seriously, I can't call a comic a graphic novel. Yeah, I've heard a lot of good things about Watchmen, but uh, I, I may just have a, a mental block. I just, I just can't, just can't, it's just not my thing. It's, yeah, I can't, I, I tried watching The Watchmen, the movie, the TV series, I, I just, I just can't, uh, just can't do it. It's just, just not my thing. Humanism is that they really seem to reflect people's conception of what need, what constitutes essential transformation. So you know, if we go from the 1940s to now, we see that origin stories change over time. First, there, you know, it's a lot about nuclear stuff, and then at points, it's about magical stuff. Now, it's really about like bioengineering genetic mutants as our conceptions of, of like a fundamental transformation changes so do the stories to convince us or to at least tell us that these individuals are different do you have a broader question about like yeah i tried to watch the new watchman series you know centered around the, the tulsa history but it was such a dramatic distortion of, of tulsa history what happened in, in tulsa uh i lasted i think one and a half episodes you know, I really, truly tried to make it a go. And uh, I love Fargo. Like, I love the movie and I love the TV series. But the, the latest series, the latest season with, with Chris Rock, again, I just I couldn't even make it through the first episode of that season. It was just so absurdly anti-white. It's good to watch, like, 1920s Soviet propaganda. Yeah, but you have to be in a particular mood. All right. So... You know, when, when you're in the mood for that kind of uh, masochism, then then's the time. How should we think about the relationship between superheroes and, and Shamu? Or of all of these narratives, these fictional narratives? So I think what's going on across them is they're reflecting this more general intuition that if a person claims to do things that normal people cannot, if they essentially like violate our concept of what a human is capable of, they have to they have to be a different kind of entity. They have to be... Right, think, think Tony Robbins. A lot of gurus or influencers, right? They, they claim to do things that ordinary people can't, like, you know, incredible feats of fasting, physical endurance, you know, moral achievement, uh, social, economic, right? It's like, here, you can believe me, you can trust me, you can have faith in me, because I can do these incredible things that normal people can't do. Be conceptually different. In superhero stories, that deviation is used towards the narrative or, or the function of exploring, like, what someone could do if they have special powers and, you know... My father was like this. He was a preacher man, and he, he would you know, try to exude being this, you know, you know, other, right? Someone who was outside the, the realm of the, the normal human. He was, you know, more disciplined. He, he read more. He exercised more. He was more careful with his diet, with his health. He was more moral. Right? He wasn't just, you know, another flesh and blood human being, deeply flawed like the rest of us. No, he had to had to be extraordinary to try to reach you know, the extraordinary heights of being a preacher man. You know, thinking about the entertainment or whatever. In shamanism, this intuition is leveraged to create 
the experience to create the perception that this individual can provide a service. You know, shamanism is a service. So what makes for a compelling live stream? So part of it is just pure entertainment value. Uh, part of it is informational value. And then the third key component is the spectacle. Like something, you know, extraordinary happens that just compels your attention. And so this is also what the great salespeople do. Yeah, he's talking about shamanism, shamans. This is what the great salespeople do, the great YouTube live streamers do, the, the great preachers do, right? They create an extraordinary experience. Yeah, guests are important, absolutely. In many, in many instances, and I think some people are resistant to this idea, but shamanism is, is overwhelmingly a service and oriented profession in a way, you know? And so... The, the yeah, so being... Uh, yeah, you're great. Look, any solo shows hard to care. Absolutely, you know, guests make things you know, much more interesting. So, being being a uh, pundit, or being a YouTuber, or uh, being a preacher or a congregational rabbi, you are in the service industry, right? If you're going to be successful, it's because you serve your audience, right? And you serve your audience by providing them assurance where they want assurance in a complicated, confusing, dislocated, atomized world. And where you provide distraction and you, you know, tell them what, what, they, what feels good to them, what they want to hear, either that the you know, world is biased against them or the world is not biased against them, that they can achieve extraordinary things or... You know, there, you know, there's a shadowy cabal who's running everything so you shouldn't feel bad about being a loser. They might be using similar narratives that fictional writers are at least like on a, on a maybe. I think uh, Kino Casino and TRS are very jealous of this uh, Nick Fuentes, Kanye West. Yeah, it's an incredible spectacle. Yeah, as someone who doesn't pick a side, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's great human drama. And uh, Nick Fuentes and Milo Yiannopoulos and Kanye West and Donald Trump are great at producing human spectacles. Right? You just can't take your eyes away from what you know, Kanye, Nick, Trump, people like Milo Yiannopoulos, right? It's just a, a train wreck quality to, to their lives. It's, it's life as a performance art a higher level if we think about them in, in this higher level comparison but for them it's really about using those narratives to convince you that, that they can provide a service that other people cannot yeah um, and I think that brings us to your first topic which we can also go into yeah so I, I do want to get I want to follow up with something that you yeah <laughs> we all hope Milo Yiannopoulos is not sexually objectifying Kanye West like, you know let this be a meeting of minds and not of bodies alright yeah, we wish for for this to be a, a spiritual transcendent, you know, Christian type of relationship here. I hope they, they don't give in to their, you know, carnal bodily urges. Yeah, that's right. Milo was on record of being a lecher with black men, specifically military guys. God forbid. God forbid. Can you restart? Because in your paper, you're talking about, like, shamanism as one of the potential first professions to emerge in, in societies and cross-culturally recurrent profession. And I can imagine there's some... Yeah, so perhaps a prostitute is the oldest profession, but shaman or the person who gives assurance in a confusing, difficult world. Uh, 
maybe the shaman is the, the, the preacher, the, the religious leader, or the, the person who gives us a sense that all is going to be right with the world. And perhaps, perhaps that's the oldest profession. But there's so many telling similarities here between the shaman, the YouTuber, the pundit, the, the clergyman, the influencer. Well, actually, I don't. This is a, probably a question for you. So, I can imagine some more progressive, liberal-minded people somewhat reactive to the notion of seeing shamans as a profession and creating narratives about their powers and that kind of stuff. Because there's a somewhat of an implication of potentially exploitative or at least. Yeah, there's no profession that, that can never be uh, exploitative. God forbid, and the space cowboy. I don't get the comment about the space cowboy, glib medley. But uh, there's no profession that is exempt from being exploitative, and certainly shamans and religious leaders, YouTubers and influencers are highly capable of being exploitative. But uh, I didn't see all these parallels before. I, I understood that the, the radio host, the YouTuber, the, the pundit was, was primarily to tell people what they wanted to hear and give them a sense of assurance. That was a So I Married an Axe Murderer reference. Okay, don't know that uh, movie or TV show. Seatful approach to things. But on the other hand, I know from anthropology that shamans very much regard what they're doing, yes, as a calling, but also as that's their profession and that's, their, that's what they do. So I'm, I'm wondering, your article, I know for evolutionary anthropologists or that kind of thing, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to discuss shamanism as a profession. But do you get pushback from like putting a potentially Western, modern frame? Uh, Mike Myers. I just don't find him very funny, right? Just not my cup of tea. I'm more of a more of a Monty Python type of bloke. On you know a practice which it, it doesn't fit well onto, and, and relatedly, how do the people in the communities react? Are they aware of your kind of theory around shamanism, and how do they react to that? Okay, that's a great question. There's a lot there, so I'll start to address whatever I remember, and then we can dig in. So listening to this discussion. Uh, it, it reminds me of an observation that if you feel like you understand your religion, you're not religious, right? But if you are, you know, authentically religious or spiritual person, you're participating in, in a mystery, you know, something that is way beyond your can. Mike Myers, he's Canadian but mostly loved by Americans. Uh, it just seems like fairly lowbrow humor. But uh, this, this theory of shamanism, right, just like uh, theories of religion, right, if you feel like you understand your religion, you feel like you understand the type of spirituality that you subscribe to, or you feel like you, you know, understand that the shaman, you have, you have stepped outside, uh, you have stepped outside the realm of uh, religion or of the shaman, right? When you, when you criti critically analyze things, it uh, makes it... You know, verging on the impossible to, you know, enjoy them in the same way. So it was actually being in Mentawi that really highlighted for me the extent to which shamanism is, surface, is, is centered around a service. And it's a bit complicated because on the one hand, shamans are, so in Mentawi they're known as Ikere, and they are regarded as, as, you know, special, powerful humans. And they're charismatic and they, they provide a center to social, spiritual, political life. On the other hand, it's it's quite clear to many people that, that it, it's a service because, you know, you're 
Shamanism and medicine have a similar ritual aspect. Yeah, if you're going to the doctor for assurance or because you feel lonely or confused or you know, there's something going on with you and you can't quite put your finger on it. Uh, yeah, there, there's a, an emotional comfort element, the, the bedside manner to, to medicine. You know, medicine contains scientific elements just like... And you know, psychology contains scientific elements. Door-to-door uh, -door sales contains scientific elements. But uh, medicine is not a science. This contains elements of science. Yeah, the white coat. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. The, the bedside manner. The you know all all the different things. Like when they they tap on your back and they listen to your lungs. Right, it just has absolutely nothing to do with your health. It's just people feel better when the doctor touch it, touches them and performs certain procedures, even though you know, these particular procedures, which are about the most common things in the world, you know, that tapping your knee and getting a response right, none of these have, you know, any efficacy except an emotional, psychological efficacy of making people feel like they're being cared for. You're sick. You have to choose among these ikede. They have to, you're evaluating different ones. There's constant talk about who's, you know, to what, is, is his trans fake? Does he really know the songs? Like, is he truly a ikede? Is he just a ikede because, you know, his dad was able to whatever pay them? And is it always a he, by the way, in those communities? Yeah, it's, a, it's slightly complicated. So the word ikede refers to both individuals and a couple. So the, and the couple is usually male and female. Or actually, every example I know is male and female. But it is the man who is called to... So a simple answer to your question is yes, it's a he. Um, and it's a bit more complicated because both of them are known as ikere. They, they heal in something called papete, healing ceremonies. And in the healings... MDMA was used by therapists for a couple of decades before it got banned. Yeah, if you, if the doctor or the therapist or the psychiatrist is able to give the patient you know, a substance, there's going to be you know, frequently uh, a positive effect. Right? The placebo effect. Right, even if there is no inherent value in the substance. So I'm all down with the placebo effect. You know, it wouldn't bother me if any of the supplements I take only have a placebo effect. You know, I'm happy to benefit from the placebo effect. You know, the world is such a you know, big buzzing confusion and so challenging that uh, you know, if there's something that brings comfort, you know, I'm, I'm totally down with it. Right? The things that bring me comfort and that work for me and buoy me up, they don't have to always make rational sense. In fact, uh, they're often much more comforting and effective if they are completely outside the realm of the rational. Healing ceremonies, it's almost always the male who is called. I actually, in my data set of 40-something ceremonies, don't have a single one in which a female is called, although I spoke to a, a doctor who's been in Mentawi for a long time, and she has said that she has seen or heard of females being called, so I don't want to say that females are never called. These are like female deities or spirits that are... No, no, sorry, th sorry, the, the female and the couple. the Like a, a woman sikere, a woman shaman. I was thinking symbolically, like a male and female, but you mean actual oh, no. couples. Yeah, so... Okay, so uh, I'll give you a simple version, and then if we want to, we can go into the complex version. A simple version is, in Mentawe, overwhelmingly, men are shaman, and men are called. So how often do you read uh, Z-Man? I'm just curious how often uh, people dip, dip into him, how much of a, of a common audience we might have. Uh, just, I've, it's been about four years since I've paid much attention to him, because I just couldn't deal with the assertion upon assertion upon assertion style that he has you know, turning out his his uh, daily column but you know I used to get asked back in the day oh, what do you think about Z-Man's latest column you know very compelling where it makes the argument that there's this you know shadowy conspiracy that's that's running things 
called teal and healing ceremonies. Men, male shamans are believed to have the power to see spirits, and they provide these services. The more complicated thing is that when a shaman is initiated, both he and his wife have to observe particular taboos. Both he and his wife come to be known as Ikede, and... Yeah, it's like my dad, the Seventh-day Adventist preacher, he would never go inside a movie theater. Because when we're Seventh-day Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists don't go, go to theaters. So even after he left the church, he still wanted to maintain, you know, that level of purity. And uh, Orthodox rabbis that I hang out with uh, back in the days when there were blockbusters, they, they wouldn't step inside a blockbuster, you know, in case that was you know, misinterpreted as, you know, they were going to see something salacious, even though blockbuster obviously didn't, didn't rent pornography. So, yeah, to be be a shaman or to be a religious spiritual hero or an influencer or you know, a particular type of uh, youtuber like there are all sorts of normal human endeavors and activities and frailties that you just can't participate in yeah apparently z-man's on tacky's mag i i haven't seen that i haven't read that so colin liddell reported there are a couple of these wives i know of who are also regarded as having these special powers. And although I have never seen them called in one of these babete, one of these kind of all day healing ceremonies, I have heard that these women are sometimes called in like more private healing. I used to like Gregory Hood. Yeah, I, I, I interviewed Z-Man, he was on my show and uh, it was fine. And uh, I used to enjoy some Gregory Hood, but uh, you know, much of the distant ride has just become too conspiratorial, too much of a I don't know, isolation in a silo. It's like, you know, people in polite society usually encourage, you know, not to talk about, you know, racial differences, but then people get red-pilled and then that's, you know, all they can talk about. And so I remember when I interviewed F. Roger Devlin, he said that the only news sources he consulted were the websites he wrote for, uh, V-Dare, American Renaissance, you know, Countercurrents, uh, websites like that. And, uh, I noticed with a lot of the, the most prolific members of the, the distant right, they, you know, they only read sources from you know, within the group. And that makes them, to me, boring, not terribly effective. I, I, I want someone who, who's grappling with all sorts of different perspectives. Yeah, he calls Baltimore Lagos. That's... Uh, that's his in-group uh, joke about Baltimore. Healing context. So, yeah, I'm sorry for uh, sidetracking you. That, that, that was a, a very clear explanation. And I'll remind you as well that you were explaining about the reaction to, like, your framework okay. yourself. Sorry. I right. Right. You. Yeah, it, it's kind of a complicated thing because in Mentoe, people recognize, they recognize that, that Sikere are competing and that you choose them on the basis of who seems the best. But there is a double narrative where you never want to signal that. Um, so sometimes I'll, I'll talk to someone and I'll be like, why did... So YouTubers are like rival gangs, right? Who go, you know, raid each other's territories. It's like definitely like a, a gang-like you know, social dynamic to the to the followers of various YouTubers. Why did you choose these these CKD to come and heal you? And they'll say, oh, they were nearby, or you know, they're they're my, my wife's relatives. Um, but of course, you know, the wife has many relatives in this area. There are many CKD nearby, like. Uh, and then when I talk to other people, it's like, yes, we, we want to talk like that because if we get sick um, and others in Kenya are not available, we don't want to give the impression that we prefer some over others or we, th we think that some are good and others are not. Do you know what I mean? You, yeah, yeah. So you are, you are ranking them and comparing them in your mind, but you don't want to do that verbally because you don't want people to feel like you, you undervalue them or, or maybe publicly offend them. Yeah. Um, so I imagine there are concepts of like honor or equivalence to honor in, in play, like fierce. 
Yeah, it's not necessarily honoring. So, for instance, and yeah, there's a funny relationship between a YouTuber and, and his audience. Like some, you know, YouTubers only want their praise, and then if they they ever get criticism from someone, then you know they're in their bad box. And then there are the people who just come on with you know, sociopaths who just come on with excessive praise, and then they just absolutely flip on you, <laughs> and uh, they become you know, just a, a torrent of hatred. So all sorts of uh, interesting dynamics between uh, the YouTuber and uh, and his audience. For instance, I, I was recently reading this pornography of Bedouin, Egyptian Bedouin system. Mm -hmm. um, where honor, I think, looks very, very different. And it's like it's more like general reputation. And, um, uh, it feels different from from like a very honor-based society. Um, so just politeness, like kind of the social norm. You should then greet people. Yeah, it's more like politeness. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. So there's a there's a recognition that you know people. It is a profession. There are different options and so on. And right. If you pray in the same synagogue. You take certain Torah classes and then you switch out. Right, that's it's a really dramatic. It can be a really dramatic development. Like it's, it feels like a betrayal when you stop, you know, taking courses from one rabbi and switch to a different rabbi or switch to a different synagogue, switch to a different uh, prayer minion. It was. I found it much more wrenching than I expected. Like the the kind of bonds that I, I felt myself, you know, building up in Orthodox Judaism. And you know my great reluctance to threaten those bonds, to disrupt those bonds, right? Just the emotional intensity of Orthodox Judaism, the power of the community over me, the power of, of forming a bond with with a rabbi, the, the loss of freedom that would come with forming bonds with with a community, with with people, with a, with a, with a rabbi, the kind of ironclad nature of the commitment, it would just you know, wrap you up like these invisible cords of connection and, and commitment that just kind of snuck up on me in Orthodox Judaism. I thought it would be something much more amenable to, you know, my, my rational analysis and choice. But you just get caught up and it, you know, it shapes you. And yet... Maybe it's not entirely kosher to completely focus on the commercial aspects as like the main thing, right? Because it's exactly dealing with uh, spiritual powers and that, that kind of thing. It's dealing with spiritual powers, it's dealing with illness. It so out of all the groups I've known, I think Jews and, and synagogues are the most realistic about money. You know, most people think somehow it's shameful to talk you know, much about money or with much explicitness, but one thing I really appreciate about Jews and Judaism is the relaxed way of dealing with the natural passions, where the natural passions for money, the fundraising for honor, for, for sex, for love, for attention, for fame, uh, for success, right, for status. Right? I, I love how honest and frank and, and down-to-earth Jews are about these you know, basic passions that, uh, that were much more repressed in my Protestant upbringing, where there was you know, much more reluctance to, to you know, admit to being you know, overwhelmed by these basic passions. Yeah, this thing, it also manifests in, the provi in, the, in how shamans provided their services. Um, so it's, it's not super appropriate for a shaman to be asked 
or to ask to be paid um but a gift and yet it is always expected that a shaman that you know when a shaman comes he will sacrifice pigs and chickens and that the shamans will get the best parts so yeah it kind of takes my breath away how frank you know rabbis and jews are and hey you know our community needs this we need to fundraise for this we need a need a new building we want to set up a school right so you know how much can you give and everyone gathers in the room and we announce you know out loud you know how much each person you know undertakes to give each month uh, Jews are breathtakingly effective at this kind of fundraising but it is not it's a little complicated to talk about that as payment because the shaman wants to maintain or there's this maintenance of a perception on, on both the provider and the and the client's part that the shaman is here to heal you and that you are, are in turn sharing with the shaman a similar thing actually occurs with food sharing in Mentawe you know people will for example, someone might have a, they might call a lot of people to help them. I noticed that only the most inept congregational rabbis, you know, make it obvious that they're they're only interested in you if you join the synagogue. Right? Most most of them have good people skills. I mean Chabad rabbis I, I find have the, have the best people skills. Like they the the one group of Orthodox Jews who don't judge you on your level of observance, they're happy to they meet you at your level. They tend to be happy, positive people. They're very good at reframing things in, in a way that uh, you know, leaves you happier as you exit the interaction or the conversation than you took going in. But uh, there are some less socially skilled congregational rabbis who it's very clear they only have an interest in you if you join the congregation. And the chat says, making money is easy. Buy the dip. Buy into the dip. All right. Them move a house or help them construct a house and then it's expected that afterwards they will share meat uh, they might kill a pig and distribute the meat to everyone who, who shared but it is not appropriate to if you are given an inappropriate or if you, let's say you help move a house or you help build a house but then the person does not share you can't for instance like demand payment you can't find them you can't so i'm thinking about all those dissident right pundits who were making the case for bitcoin right assuring you you know buy bitcoin you know, buy into the dip of Bitcoin. It's, uh, you know, I've just bought another Bitcoin. It's just part of the, the charlatan and aspect of the distant riot and the abysmal judgment of any of the characters on the distant riot and the, the preference for trying to do things outside the system. And this need to, oh, you know, I know what's really going on. Like the mainstream media is not telling you the truth. So if you're going to do a YouTube show like I do, I have to come with some perspectives that you're not going to read in the New York Times because otherwise you could just read the New York Times and get everything you need. So this predisposes the, the YouTuber and the, the guru and the pundit to conspiracy theories because if all you can come up with are conventional mainstream perspectives then there's no audience for that because that need is already filled by the mainstream media. Right? The New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, NPR, they're very skilled at what they do, very good at what they do. So if you want to compete with offering opinions on the news, you're heavily incentivized to get into conspiracy theories and fringe ideas. So you tell your audience, hey, you need to come to me if you want to get this, you know, out-of-the-box perspective. And so this also drives much of the, the distant right punditry that uh, you know, Bitcoin, Bitcoin's the way to go. This is and the, the, the new method of finance outside the system where 
that we can't be deplatformed or have our checking account, you know, shut down. And so this preference for outside the system, that sometimes it's right and sometimes it's wrong. Right? There are plenty of times when you want to work within the system, and then there are occasionally times when you want to work outside the system. But just having a default, you know, de facto, de rigueur, de jure, <laughs> Uh, tendency to always look for you know outside the box outside the system solutions that hasn't served many people on the distant right very well if they were heavily into cyber currencies which uh, increasingly turned out to be a disaster and go to someone else and the mentality find each other constantly it's it's a society that indigenously is quite litigious but there are certain domains in which in which the transactional nature is a bit taboo uh, yeah, a bit that's, that's, a, that's something similar to a lot of parallels I can think of, including in Japan, around the provision of like uh, funeral services. There's obvious costs and money involved, but a lot of it has to be phrased in no specific way, not to make it seem profit-orientated, even though a lot of it looks very much like standard capitalism, um, just in a specific domain. But that, I guess the uh, difference would be a potluck. In yeah, the yeah. Context. But uh, I'm thinking that that's like... In the case of like Korean shamanism, which I'm you know vaguely familiar with, it feels like there's much more different than the word acknowledgement of payment for services and stuff. But it'll depend on the context as to how much that is kosher. That kind of answers the question of around how receptive they are. How about evolutionary anthropologists? Like I say, I think they'd be pretty open to that consideration. But do you ever get accusations that you're applying westernized ethnocentric categories that don't make sense in indigenous perspectives? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in, in many ways, and shamanism is a topic where that has long been something that people have talked about. And I think for a very good reason, you know, earlier you have Eliad, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, he's so big in the field, um, but he comes out with this book, Shamanism, and he talks about a very particular model of shamanism, which involves soul flight and hunting and gathering societies and animal spirits. So I, I define shamanism much more generally as I think too many people have so individuals entering what appear to be... So from an academic secular perspective, the, the primary purpose of religion is to provide comfort. And... From, a, from an academic perspective, the primary purpose of pundits is to provide comfort. You know, whatever team you're on, right, the, the pundit's going to tell you what you want to hear. The primary purpose of a YouTuber guru who's commenting on the news of the day right, is to provide comfort, to you know, make you feel better, to give you assurance that that is not warranted by reality. So all these you know, various professions, pundit, preacher, YouTuber, shaman, doctor, they're here to provide comfort. That's, you know, that's their primary purpose. And why is there such an enormous need for comfort? Because, you know, the modern world is discombobulating. It's atomizing. The, the traditional forms of, you know, enchantment and magic you know, it's just no longer as prestigious or as valid or as common as it once was. So, you know, we move around, we lose, lose touch with family, friends, community, and so we keep looking for comfort. Whether it's on YouTube or with our shamans. Non-ordinary states to engage with unseen realities and provide services. Eliot had a much more constrained definition, or a much more constrained framework. Siberia is the the model, um, you know, like I mentioned, your soul leaves your body in trance. There are maybe different levels. There's a, a lot of importance of flight. Um, 
they're animal helpers. And so people have this framework and then they're going to different contexts, wildly diverse contexts, and, and applying this very particular model. So that's just to say that I think shamanism, like many topics in anthropology, has been saddled with this, this problem of having a particular expectation and projecting it on, onto the society. And I think the study of shamanism is still quite wary of that. And so, of course, I've been, I've confronted that. But then there is, as you talked about, like the particular way in which I frame shamanism. And that's something I'm constantly working on and constantly being careful about. The way that I really think about shamanism is that it is a technology. It's, you know, me performing deviations from, from normal humanness to assure you that, that I can do things that normal humans cannot. And I, this yeah, this is what preachers do. This is what YouTubers do. Right? This is what pundits do. Influencers do. They perform deviations from normal humanity to show you that they're special so my father would do this with his extraordinary physical workouts his extraordinary mental discipline is this from decoding the gurus yes it's the latest episode of decoding the gurus but i just think it's so applicable to youtubers and and to pundits right so if you want to be an influencer whether as a preacher man as a rabbi as a youtuber a pundit, right? You need to show how separate you are from normal human concerns. So you don't watch football, right? You don't watch TV, or you're into intermittent fasting, or you know you just eat an all meat diet, or you know you bench press 400 pounds, or you know you just got back from a week long silent retreat, right? You have to emphasize how different you are from normal human beings. And then that provides a basis for people believing that you're extraordinary and that you might have extraordinary powers. This is this can be used for good. You know, Holly Wiesner is an anthropologist who works with the these um South African, the Jew Monsi. I'm like wary about saying their name because I, I don't feel confident in my ability to like properly do clicks. Um, it's better than mine, trust me, trust me. <laughs> but so she was recently telling me about a time when she was in the field and she woke up screaming, she was incredibly anxious, and they immediately started a trance dance. Um some of the some of the, the people in the camp went into trance and they healed her you know they're putting their hands on her they're, they're entering trance and she talked about like really feeling love really feeling the, the way that it's conceptualized there is like half death that you are you are going to so if people at your synagogue or your church all right if, if they pray for you right you're going to feel loved and you're going to feel better yes so i was nervous going into halftime the cowboys were trailing 13 to 6 there's this great a website here, KO Sports, where for about $27 a month, you can, I can get almost all my sporting needs met live. So watching watching the Cowboys come back to a 28-20 victory, very solid win over the Giants today. They were magnificent in the second half. And then I'm watching the World Cup on SBS. That's the multicultural channel started up in, in Australia. So ABC is the government-sponsored uh, highbrow channel. And then they started SBS for, you know, Australia's, you know, many diverse communities. When Australia opened up immigration in the 1970s, one of the benefits of that is that we got SBS. So SBS and the ABC, they aim at an audience with an average IQ of around 108, 110, while the commercial channels, they seem to aim at an average IQ audience of around 95 to the edge of death is an incredibly dangerous or risky endeavor and so everyone coming out everyone clapping all night these shamans showing up for you really is a demonstration of commitment of investment and she said the next day she felt so much better and I just, so i just want to provide that as an example of a case where you know i think it's a technology that, that could be used positively or has many positive effects but i think that it also is often used for equity so i was wondering but us.
Alright, see this little green fella here? Like, he just kind of fell onto my neck, and I smacked him, and I thought that he was a piece of grass. And now I see this piece of grass is moving. So he just alighted on my neck as I was providing you with these life-changing, earth-shattering, mind-blowing insights. Right, this is the kind of attack that I'm under here. And this little fella started moving. And so I see, ah, he's not a piece of glass, grass. He's one of God's creatures. And he was crawling on my neck. I thought I'd smashed it, but it's still going. Sometimes in the same society, it's used for both. I was recently, oh my god, I think this is like my favorite quote that I've ever come across from a shaman. Um, so it was from a shaman among the Sora, uh, a group in India, and he he uh, channeled this. He's working with a young widow, and he channels her husband, and you know, possessed by her her dead husband, presumably, he says something like, "I really want to have sex with you, but I must do it through the body of this shaman." <laughs> but you know, there are all kinds of examples of shamans exploiting their position, the perception of their power for sex, for food, for resources, for whatever. You know, shamans are humans. They are people who have self-interested ends and want to use that to get what they want yeah rabbis are humans right they're just as likely to be lustful angry selfish cruel exploitative as plumbers as accountants as soccer players so that was one of the shocks i, I used to have rabbis on, on a pedestal so i'm coming to you from the royal botanical gardens here by sydney harbour looking across to the sydney opera house yeah, so that's you know that's a really fascinating example. Like two things I wanted to mention in response was one, I have a very similar opinion to you of like the criticisms of the term religion, right? Applied broadly, there's lots of legitimacy to those critiques, but I think you can you can bypass them in a lot of respect by just applying a sensible definition. That people think you can't do that, but I disagree. So I'm completely on board with your approach to shamanism. But what you okay? Let's have a look at this little creature who just alighted on my neck in the middle of. See, he's alive. I thought that was a piece of grass. Doesn't he look like a piece of grass? But it's alive. Isn't that weird? I smacked that off, smacked that off my neck, and then it started moving. Would you not think that's a piece of grass? you were just saying about you know people performing social roles and, and shamans being like parts of community often associated with healing and can actually be you know healers providing herbal remedies and actual medicines in communities as well but i think to like western audiences they're aware of and often very critical of the people who claim to channel dead relatives right there are many people are aware of cold reading and, and hot reading techniques right there so for those that aren't but like people appearing to solicit the information but really using kind of manipulative techniques in order for you to give them the information or hot reading being just that you collect the information through other sources like maybe you get people to write cards down and, and then you know extract the information from it so there there's a lot of very prevalent critiques of that kind of the word is escaping me for those people but the people who channel the dead um, Medium. mediums yeah yeah but on the other side there's the current growing industry around psychedelic experiences and ayahuasca ceremonies and you know the kind of fascination in the tech spheres with taking trips into the jungle to have vision quests and that kind of thing and maybe that's always been there i think like if you go to the 80s you're going to find yuppies also expressing interest in it but seeing those things as within the same 
arena, I think is something that people don't do. And they would be more wary of applying the same kind of criticisms that they would to mediums operating in a paranormal sphere as they would to applying criticisms to, you know, something which is seen as a non-Western cultural context. So, yeah, but I, I personally just feel like, you know, like you say, humans are humans. Some of them are good, some of them are... It, it, and even the ones that are engaged in exploitative behaviours are often, you know, in all their aspects of their life, very nice. So, yeah, it's a complicated topic. And I guess, Andrew, that leads nicely to the connection to modern gurus and... I don't know how, how closely you follow modern gurus, the kind of people we talk about, Jordan Peterson and Brett Weinstein and, and other such figures. But just broadly speaking, initially, do you yourself see, you know, kind of parallels there or you think they're kind of different phenomenon with quite strong divisions? Yes, I don't think that's mutually incompatible. Like, I, I definitely think shamans are different modern gurus. <laughs> like, I definitely think uh, shamans are, are different from modern gurus, and I think there are there are probably parallels. So I can I can try to elaborate on some parallels, but maybe it would be better if I like asked you directed questions to to pull out the, the parallels. Sure, I've, I know a couple of gurus. <laughs> yeah, so I guess we can go from from two ends. One end would be to start by saying to what extent are gurus promising people control over uncertainty? Like, there is probably things that, that people find unpredictable or uncontrollable in their lives, whether it's their status or what. So I remember when I'd be doing a show and people want to know what I thought, who was who was going to win the election, something something like that. And I've never placed much stock in my predictions, like making predictions is a very, very minor part of my show. But, you know, people want assurance. That That's why they were asking. In a confusing, discombobulating world, people want comfort and assurance. Whatever. And the, the first parallel would be that uh, gurus would, would promise some control while potentially not actually being able to provide it. Do you think that happens? Yeah, so the two things that immediately come to mind are, one, the response in the pandemic where many gurus leaned into the vaccine narratives or promoting alternative treatments, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, right? And in those respects, uh, yes, it's a very direct medical setting, but they are in it. Yeah, Dennis Prager would do that. He was, like, all on board with the Zelensky protocol. Right, and Prager's, you know, off, oh, look at that magnificent uh, cruise ship moving into uh, Sydney Harbour. But uh, you know, Prager has often gotten on board with, you know, various solutions to you know, life skills from nutritional ones to you know, medical ones. Uh, so very, very guru-like. The, the, remember the Zelensky protocol, like his protocol for, for dealing with, uh, for curing COVID with, you know, ivermectin? in essence, claiming that they have the correct procedures, you know, the correct medicines that you need to guard your health and that there are these threats that other people don't recognize as threats. And, and so there's a parallel there, but there also seems to me like this might be a bit of a more of a stretch, but let's see what you think. Uh, Jordan Peterson and the more like symbolically inclined and, and maybe slightly religiously inclined, in his case, heavily religiously inclined gurus, I think they, and actually maybe some of the secular ones, present a kind of spiritual health, right? That like people today, modern secular society in a kind of barbarian way are very alienated, they're very atomized and they've lost their heart, right? And so if they engage with the kind of thinking, the kind of philosophies or the kind of traditions that they're highlighting, people can regain their vitality and spiritual essence and, you know, in, in many cases become the young men that they were supposed to be. So that that seems to strike me as like two potential clear parallels. Yeah, yeah, no, I think both those made sense. I think the second one, I, I would imagine that it would be especially potent or effective if it could be connected to things that people are dissatisfied in their life, things that people want control over or want to resolve that they currently cannot. Um, oh, you want, you know, whatever X, you want to be more healthy, you want this, something that, that people can't get control over, but um, yeah, yeah, there would be some promise of a, of a service. A partner. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes. Um, and so, okay, so if we're going back into this parallel with shamanism, the next question would be, 
what gives these people the credibility? What, these people are presumably claiming to have insight, have solutions into problems that are otherwise very hard to resolve, into information that is otherwise very difficult to acquire. The technique, again, that shamans often use, uh, and, you know, as, as magical religious specialists, they use a number of techniques to create perceptions of authority. Um, but, you know, the one that I have really been thinking about and talking about is this showing that you are fundamentally different from other people. Um, so you mentioned something like this earlier, that, you know, they think about the world in a different way, you know, from an early age, they, they have different kinds of minds. But, yeah, then the next, if we're thinking about the parallel, the next question I would ask you is, are there ways in which the gurus that, that you just mentioned also create authority or credibility by promoting perceptions of, of differing fundamentally or in interesting ways from, from normal humans? Yeah, so there is the, like like you say, there's the part where there's often these references to always thinking differently, right? That they just see the world in a way that other people never could. And, like, there's this clip that I might insert here where you have Eric and Brett Weinstein, the brothers, discussing their experiences together, basically saying that they are somewhat unique in that when they find themselves in a situation where everyone else, every scientific authority is telling them that they're wrong, that that gives them pleasure, and more certainly that they're right. You and I share a certain delight when we do our homework and we discover something interesting and absolutely nobody else gets it that would feel bad to most people because they would feel like what am i doing wrong why does nobody else understand this point to you and me that feels good it is to know that you have achieved something you've discovered something and that nobody else can even recognize it, it gives you some sort of sense of how far ahead you might be it seems pathological but like i uh, see it but the, the, from my perspective but that that strikes me as what you were talking about you know always having the shifted perception but the other component is that many of them claim to undergo a kind of trial by fire in the modern environment it's often a public cancellation effort and in those cases they often say that you know where other people would have folded or kind of bowed down to the mob that they were to steal a jordan peterson metaphor like they would go into the belly of the wheel fight the dragon and and come back yeah so z-man's been doxxed but He's gone into the belly of the whale. He's fought the demon of the Southern Poverty Law Center, and he's come back stronger than ever, still knocking out a column a day. Back, not necessarily like fully transformed, but more realized the person that they always felt that they were. And now the world gets to see. And they also do tend to say explicitly, I'd lean into Brett Weinstein because he kind of fits the mold so well, but he explicitly talked about identifying others who are reliable because of undergoing similar ordeals and you know I, I think he's a less applicable to the kind of toxic guru approach but like sam harris in a way displays a great sympathy for anybody that has underwent kind of cancellation effort so i don't know if that's stretching the parallel but public cancellation seems to be potentially playing the role of a ritual transformative event which gives you like special insight and power yeah i mean yeah if you can survive being cancelled all right it's like you survived the holocaust it must mean that you're special but in reality just because you survive cancellation or you survive a genocide doesn't make you any wiser, kinder, stronger, more clear, right? Doesn't convey you know, any virtue just because you survived a cancellation or a genocide. That's interesting. I do want to be careful about not stretching the analogy. What, what, what about, so this is this is my perception, I'd like to ask you a question. So my perception is that shamanism in large part, or at least in many traditions, is a apprenticeship system where you, you you do take a guru or a master and you know you learn the techniques over time. And in many cases, the, the kind of secular gurus, they don't emphasize that. They emphasize, you know, the ersatz knowledge. Maybe they had some, some figures who, you know, inspired them, but in most occasions they're saying, it was their unique insight and they were interested in other people with unique insights but it's it's fundamentally coming from them and my, my impression with shamans is rather that they're tapping into 
a power which already exists and, and traditions and systems which are like kind of uh, like a profession, like you say. So is that a distinction or is that specific schools of, or cultures of shamanism? Yeah, so I don't know systematic work that has looked at the frequency with which shamans train with, you know, have learned from particular people. I do share your impression that it's, that it's quite common. At the same time, two, two things come to mind. So first, it is the case that shamans sometimes do build credibility without necessarily bringing on a teacher. They might, you know, from an early age, enter trance and then spontaneously heal people. But the other thing that, that you actually remind me of are prophets. And I think... Well, you can start out as a commentator on someone else's blog, then graduate to your, having your own blog, then your own podcast, and your own YouTube channel. Special class or shamans where, you know, if we think about shamans as service providers who enter non-ordinary states... Prophets often are also promising services or promising control, but over problems that are much larger. And so, you know, prophets are co-creating with their audiences narratives about the end of the world or, or large uh, society being pit against you and your group. And they often use similar techniques as, as what we might think of as, as more mundane shamans, narratives of, of, of difference, narratives of, of fundamental transformation, often also explicitly trans, but the scope of the problem is much larger. And, and so, you know, maybe they have some of their authority or expertise draw on a tradition, draw on learning from someone, but of course they also have to have to build something much larger than that. You know, it's not only, okay, yes, I have the training to treat these illnesses, but I, for some reason, have to be the guy, have to be the person who can get the, the British colonial monster out of here or who can, you know, bring back the, the planes that brought incredible gifts or who can liberate us from the, from the end of the world. I also just wanted to be clear and careful about not overstretching the analogy with the gurus. Because, you know, okay, I think that will do it for today. Going to get ready for Shabbat. It's uh, 4.29 p.m. here, Friday afternoon. Got to get a move on. Shabbos waits for no man. Bye-bye.